Once upon a time. 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 Hello, everyone. Welcome to the bonus episode of Dad's Read Princess Stories. I am your host, RPJ. And welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to bring to you all today this wonderful conversation that I had with writer and author Amanda LaDuke about her book that is out right now called Disfigured on Fairy Tales, Disability, and Making Space, published by Coach House Books. You can get this book wherever books are sold. So if you need to... I'm pretty sure you can get it on Amazon. You can order it in. I was actually able to get it in from a local bookstore where I live, and that bookstore was able to actually mail it to me. So on a side note, if you are able to, please do support local businesses. A lot of them are able to mail to you. A little bit more about Amanda before we get into the actual conversation. Amanda is also the author of the novel Miracles of Ordinary Men, published in 2013 by ECW Press. Getting the centaur's wife is a little difficult. I'm pretty sure it is out of press at the moment. So you gotta do a little bit of digging if you would like to get a copy of it. I was able to get mine used on Amazon, I believe. That was... The, my last sort of option, but I did it, and the bonus is it was signed. So, snooze you lose to the person that sold their used copy that was signed by Amanda LaDuke. Her new novel, The Centaur's Wife, is forthcoming with Random House Canada in the spring of 2021, which I cannot wait for. Her essays and stories have appeared across Canada, the US, the United Kingdom, and Australia. Born in British Columbia, she has lived in Ontario, England, BC, and Scotland. Amanda LaDuke has cerebral palsy and presently makes her home in Hamilton, Ontario, where she lives with her lovable, very destructive dog and serves as the communications development coordinator for the Festival of Literary Diversity, Canada's first festival for diverse authors and stories. I'll quickly let you know that you can follow Amanda on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or go to her website, amandaleduke.com, and you'll be able to find out more about the things that she's doing. I know she was recently doing book tours online, which is really, really cool. So you actually don't have to go out of your house. You can just go online and hear these stories from the authors themselves. Her website will also, of course, have all the links for you to be able to find those novels. And we will leave links in the episode description on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all of you. So with all of that, please enjoy. And we hope that you learn a few things. I know I certainly did from this conversation with the quite amazing Amanda LaDuke. First thing that I wanted to ask you about was the intro of the book, which I found really, really quite interesting and very refreshing was when you talked about 
identity first and person first language. Mm -hmm. Because I had never, I think I always knew about it. I just didn't know those, what it was called. Mm -hmm. I don't think most people know. I think the majority of society probably has no knowledge of that, of the terms and what they actually mean, but they understand the concepts behind them. Because the moment I read it, I went, oh yeah, of course, I, of course I understand that. Of course, I, that totally makes sense to me. Are you okay talking about yeah. like what those, what, what those both mean to people, like, so people can understand the podcast and the, like the differences between them and the importance of that. Right. So um, just for anybody who maybe is listening and hasn't uh, read the book uh, yet, hopefully you will. Um, in the beginning, I, I talk a little bit about where the idea for the book came from and, and sort of go into, you know, different uh, themes in there and different things that I'm hoping I'll explore in the course of the book. And one of the things that I touch on um, is the difference between person first language and identity first language. So in the disability community, identity first language is by and large preferred by most individuals. And identity first language is when you, you say, that someone is a disabled person as opposed to a person with a disability. Person first language is just that where you say someone is a person with a disability, someone is a person with autism, someone is a person with cerebral palsy. Um, and person first language uh, has been around for the last few decades. And it was something that was initially well-meaning and it's language that is still in use today uh, in many cases by people who are themselves not disabled. Um, so what you'll often hear is someone usually from the disability community say something like, like, oh, you know, disabled people or this disabled person. And then it happens on Twitter a lot where someone who is not disabled will come in and comment on that and say, oh, it's person with a disability, not disabled person. You know, you are not your disability. You're so much more than that. And again, I think many people mean well when they say things like this, but the problem there is that person-first language separates a person's identity from their disability. And the reason that people have done that for decades is because people have traditionally viewed disability as a bad thing um, in the sense that, you know, you don't want to have who you are as a person associated with your disability. We do that because society has viewed disability as a weakness and people you know, historically have not liked to be associated with weakness. But in the disability community, the thing that we've been trying to say for a really long time is that um, the, the disability community now really pushes for disability first language, for identity first language, because when you have a disability, it shapes your life in a very particular way. And there is no shame in acknowledging that, acknowledging that your disability makes you who you are. My life, um, I mean, my disability, you know, is, is mild in some ways. So I can do a lot of things that non-disabled people can do. But my life has also been shaped um, and my story has been shaped by the fact that I have cerebral palsy and I had these you know, experiences with assistive devices when I was younger and no one should be ashamed of that. You know, that doesn't take away from who I am as a person. It in fact adds to who I am as a person. It adds to my experience of the world. It adds to my insight. 
And that is, you know, a huge part of, of the push for identity first language is people saying over and over, you know, my disability is a part of who I am. It makes me who I am. I'm not ashamed of it. And the language that I use shouldn't be ashamed of it either. Um, I think the other thing that, that you know, is, is difficult um, when you as a disabled person are hearing someone who's not disabled use person first language is that says to me that um, the non-disabled person has real difficulty viewing someone with a disability as a person in the first place, right? So when you say, oh, um, you know, it's, it's a, they're a person with autism, not autistic. Um, to me, if someone says that to me, it, it means that they have trouble seeing someone who's autistic as a person in the first place, and they have to continually remind themselves in the language that they use that this individual is a person. And we don't use those kinds of descriptors in that particular way with other things, right? I mean, I also identify as bisexual and I don't go around saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not queer, I'm a person with queerness, or, you know, I'm, I'm not a female, I'm a person with femaleness. We don't do that for anything else. So why do we do it with disability? It's because people see disability as a weakness and we need to stop viewing disability that way. And one of the ways that we do that is by continually reminding people that the language that they use is really important and you need to listen first and foremost to the communities who are at the center of this conversation and hear what they have to say and really use them as a guide for how to change your behavior. It, I, I felt it was a great door opener to the book. Just reading that first little intro and, oh, okay, I see this is more than just an analyst of fairy tales. Yeah. And what it is. And I, I think that's, there's a great strength within the book about that. I'm interested to know because obviously within the book, you also talk about your journey in your life. Mm-hmm. And even at the beginning, and I don't want to give too much away because I obviously want people to read this book. You know, you do talk about where the initial idea came from, like that one moment where you're walking and you, you come from the idea of like, oh, this could be a book. But was there a moment, did you always know that you wanted to write something that was autobiographical at the same time? Was that something that you've, like, have you always sort of wanted to talk about that story of your life and fairy tales was like a separate thing and you kind of just went oh these what was the moment that those two things connected for you so um the answer is is kind of no initially like i've always loved fairy tales but i never really envisioned that i would write a nonfiction book about them specifically partly because i felt like a nonfiction book about fairy tales would be a work of scholarship and i'm not a fairy tale scholar so i, I really wanted to be you know careful of that and when i went to to write the book my initial intent with it was to put it more on the side of looking at fairy tales and just kind of looking at them from a perspective again of not scholarship necessarily but cultural criticism so like the pop culture ways in which we view fairy tales and how they've shaped the movies and the narratives that we take in in mainstream media but as i began writing the book my personal story almost immediately sort of reared its head and wanted to be woven into things and i think that's where 
where for me, the writing of it gained the most power was weaving that personal story into, you know, these, these stories of fairy tales and how fairy tales have shaped our perceptions of disability, because essentially I'm like a, a case study of, of when that occurs in the world, right? Where I loved fairy tales and, you know, Disney interpretations of fairy tales in particular as a child. And that gave me a very specific worldview, which even though I didn't realize it at the time was connected to my disability and how I moved throughout the world. And my expectations for myself as a person, you know, were very closely tied to not being disabled or not acknowledging my disability, trying to pretend that it wasn't there because this sort of ongoing narrative in the stories that I read were things like, you know, disabled people don't go and achieve things. They don't go out and, um, you know, they're not the triumphant people at the end of the story. The disabled people are the villains. And even though as a child, I never would have like I had internalized it. And as a kid, you don't necessarily have language for that sort of thing, right? But it wasn't until I grew older and became an adult and really hit my mid thirties that I really started to reckon with what imbibing all of those stories as a child really did to me and did to my perception of disability in particular. So in the course of then writing it, it, it was really quite interesting because I had to go right back to that young disabled child that I had essentially turned away from and, and you know, pretended for so long wasn't there because I also had, you know, viewed disability as a weakness for a large part of my life and was so focused on, you know, I'm not disabled because I can do all of these things. And if you're disabled, it means that you can't do a whole bunch of things and you're somehow less of a person. So my own journey, I think, wove itself into the book because I want people to understand how much this affects us in ways that we're not even aware of. And, you know, detailing my own story and, and being vulnerable and also being, you know, taking the story out of abstractions uh, was really important to me to get across that very particular message, right? A book of cultural criticism is one thing, but a memoir and, you know, tying cultural criticism to the real world and, and people's actual lives um, became really important for me in the course of writing it. It just sort of naturally evolved into that particular shape. It's very interesting, the, the, the layout of the book, because without giving away things too much for anyone, it is a very it is very refreshing to sort of read almost a chapter about a fairy tale. You, every chapter sort of feels like you're going, okay, this one's about Grimm's and this mm -hmm. one's about this. And this one, we're going to kind of deconstruct this. And then almost at the very end, there's a moment where it suddenly just snaps back to your life mm -hmm. and what's going on in the chronological where your life goes. And so you end up reading this book going, okay, yeah, we're deconstructing. And then you kind of know by you know the second or third chapter you're like okay when are we getting back to this <laughs> sort of moment because you know it's going to you you know that you're going through your life chronologically as well mm -hmm. and how you viewed the world and how then you now view the world it's so well put together and uh very clear on the faults that are in society and and how that affects people and how you how you not just talk about uh, disability, but bullying in general and mm -hmm. what that's like for youth. And yeah, just you're, it's a great book to kind of go, here's a door for you. Here's the door for you. Like, you know, I'm also, I've also gone through this experience. You're not alone in this. And it's, 
it's very welcomed. It's very enjoyable to like have that in a book, but also have things about fairy tales. So you, you kind of going, oh yeah, I didn't know about this. And I didn't know about that. One thing I'm interested about is what kind of research did you do for fairy tales? What else, like how else do other people find them? Are you going just to the bookstore? Is it Googling? Is it, you know, what fairy tales are you drawn to initially? And where, like what fairy tale did you find that you never thought you would ever read, but suddenly, you know, got to, were there, was there any fairy tales that you loved, but you felt like you shouldn't? So to start with the research was a great experience for me. It was really, really interesting. And basically just going down a series of rabbit holes for, you know, over the course of six months. And I started Initially, I had wanted the book just to be an essay because I had figured that the connection between disability and fairy tales seemed so obvious to me when it sort of hit me initially, as I talk about in the introduction. It seemed so obvious that I thought there would be a lot written about it. So I started Googling just disability and fairy tales, and there wasn't a lot. So some of the first texts that I came across were academic. Uh, there's an author uh, in the U.S. by the name of Anne Schmiesing, who has a book out, an academic book, about disability and deformity in the Brothers Grimm tales in particular. So I started reading that. And then that was a gold mine of information because she was reviewing um, or referencing all sorts of different kinds of uh, fairy tale scholars. So then I got a whole bunch of other books from um, Amazon. I know we're not supposed to like Amazon or use it, but Amazon, I will say, is a very accessible outlet for disabled people in particular who often can't get into stores that are not themselves accessible. Um, so I'll just say that and have that be that. Um, so I, I read a lot of books um, and then I did a lot of online research. So I follow a lot of disability activists on Twitter and I was paying a lot of attention to their conversations. And then I, I put a call out probably in February of 2019 to disability Twitter to see if anybody would be interested in talking about those connections with me. And that led to a series of conversations, which I then incorporated into the book in a series of interviews. And I was really grateful for that because it connected me with people um, that I had admired for a really long time in ways that, that were really quite gratifying and quite exciting because it, I felt like I was even more a part of the disability community than I had been before, which was, was quite nice. And I think one of my favorite parts about writing the book and the research involved was that I had always sort of, so I did a bachelor's degree in creative writing and philosophy and then a master's degree in creative writing. And what that essentially meant, um, especially when I was in doing my undergrad, I went to the University of Victoria um, in Victoria, BC. Uh, what that essentially meant was that I, I visited the university library a total of maybe four times over the course of my four years being there, um, because a lot of the, the texts that we were referencing were, you know, creatively written books and fiction and, and nonfiction, yes, but nonfiction books that you could get at the bookstore. And I always sort of had this idea in my head of, of myself as not being a good researcher or not being able to research because I viewed research as this sort of thing where, you know, you go to a physical library and you're looking through dusty old books or you're looking through films of microfiche. And, you know, I hadn't done any of that. So I, I didn't really think that I was a, a good researcher or that research would be particularly fun. And in writing Disfigured, that just turned the whole idea on its head for me because it was just so fascinating to, you know, read the book by Anne Schmiesing and hear her talk about um, 
other writers, uh, you know, and, and other fairy tale scholars like Jack Zipes and the morphology of the folktale by Vladimir Propp, who was a scholar in the uh, sort of mid 20th century, who, and you know, all of these people who historically have been writing about fairy tales and looking at the ways that fairy tales have influenced society and, and culture. Uh, and it was just so interesting. And then to look at the sort of real world, quote unquote, research that I was doing in terms of the interviews and, you know, collating Twitter threads and looking at YouTube videos and stuff like that. It just, it was really, really fascinating. Also, I got to, you know, rewatch a whole bunch of Disney movies and watch television shows like Once Upon a Time and then, you know, look at the ways that fairy tales and fairy tale motifs have moved into other movies that we know. Um, and all of that was really, really interesting as well. As a writer, as, you know, I, I considered myself primarily a fiction writer for a long time. And in fiction writing, there's always a point where I'm writing a short story or writing a novel, and then we get to the point in the plot where I don't know what's supposed to happen next, and I have no idea how it happens, and I just sort of have to wait for an idea to strike me. When I was writing Disfigured, uh, I never had that issue because whenever I got to a point where I was like, well, I'm not sure what happens next, I would just go back and read more research or you know do some more digging on the internet and inevitably every single time I would come across some other interesting nugget or fact that would lead me down another rabbit hole that I could explore and then you know hook that back to the narrative that I was already building. So that is kind of my long roundabout answer to that that initial question of, of you know research and how the research for the book came together. And then also there was you know the research for the personal side of things, right, where I had to do things like interview my parents about their experience of taking me to the hospital when I was a child and and all that sort of thing. And it was just yeah, it was really enjoyable. And I hope that my next nonfiction experience is, is the same. I worry that it won't be that, you know, writing disfigured was sort of unique in how enjoyable it was. <laughs> but, you know, hopefully I can replicate the experience for another book in the future. Why do you think that we do use disfigurement as a sign of villainy mm. in our literature and our storytelling? I mean, I, I think... Yeah. It's a great question, uh, and it has a very convoluted answer that's sort of one of those answers that feeds on itself and connects back to a whole bunch of things. I think in storytelling, so, you know, stories have existed as long as humans have existed. We've always been telling stories to one another. And stories were the first way that we understood the world, both for ourselves and then in relation to one another. So stories were the first place where the idea of difference, right? And people who are different from quote unquote, the norm were conceptualized. And there's something about the way when you tell stories about someone who is different and you situate that difference as connecting to the person themselves and not being connected to the society. It means that the society at large doesn't need to change, right? Which is a very sort of sophisticated way of thinking, which, you know, maybe wasn't available. I mean, it certainly wasn't available to, you know, people who were the peasantry in the 14th and 15th and 16th centuries. You know, this idea of class and, and how you separate someone out by villainizing them by virtue of how they look, because that also absolves society of needing to change, right? In order to accept or bring the ostracized person in. It's also a very simplistic way of looking at the world, which was quite helpful 
in olden times and I think continues to be helpful now, right? Because the world is a very big and scary place. And when you put a framework on the world that says, you know, here, it's okay if you're a good person and you act good and you do good deeds, you will get everything that you need in the end. It sort of superimposes this very simplistic narrative on things, which we know on some level is not true, but also it's like, it's a comfort, right? To go back to that simplistic story as a way of making sense of the world. And I think that framework has been superimposed essentially on people who, you know, have had a variety of different disabilities over the course of millennia, because we haven't as a species been able to conceptualize how to change society in a way that brings the other other person in, right? If you look at the built environment um, and something like stairs, right? And how it would have, you know, conceivably been very difficult for someone who maybe was paralyzed from the waist down to get around in the middle ages. It's a lot easier to make that person a pariah and separate them off from society than it is to think, okay, we need to change the way that our towns are built. We need to change the fact that there are stairs everywhere. We have to put ramps in. We have to, you know, do all of this stuff, especially because this, this person, this one person has a body that is different from other people's, right? It's been very easy to just cut the outcast off. And Again, it's been a very easy way of narrative of saying, you know, the world is simple because people who look different, this is how you treat them. This is how you move them out of the way. Um, and then nothing else needs to change. And I think that is something that, you know, when people, especially young children, even now, especially now, are exposed to that kind of thinking, even subliminally, when they're children, it perpetuates that idea, right? Nothing needs to change. The status quo doesn't need to be any different. We don't need to further complicate the world by thinking about our behavior and how we need to change as a society. You know, if you're a young child who um, encounters someone with a facial difference or, you know, some other kind of scarring or physical disfigurement on the playground, it's okay. You can just not associate with them and then you can go about doing your regular life. You don't need to change anything, right? And I think when you when you put it that way to a lot of people, they, they get really uncomfortable because nobody likes to think that they're responsible for perpetuating ostracization or perpetuating discrimination in society, right? Even though that's true and we continue to do that. And I think that also comes into play with things like identity first versus person first language. When you use person first language as a non-disabled person, there's a certain kind of infantilization that then happens to the disabled person that you're speaking about. It's person with a disability, you know? I mean, we all, the, the sort of standard status quo is for society to not think of these people as people because then society doesn't need to change to include them in very, you know, specific, particular kinds of ways. And this is all, you know, this all comes out of fairy tales. It comes out of the folk tales and the stories that we tell that we've been telling in front of our fires for thousands of years, the stories that we tell to children. So they're not, you know, they, they have a simple structure, fairy tales, but they're not simple at all, particularly when it comes to society and how they both speak against society, but then also help to reinforce certain social structures that continue to disenfranchise a large amount of people. 
do you think that older fairy tales are, and the messages behind them, especially the endings, are better or worse than what Disney did mm -hmm. with how they changed fairy tales? For me, I don't know if it's a question of better or worse, because I think, um, I think there's, there's elements of both, right, that, that really deserve a lot of scrutiny and a lot of discussion. Um, for me, in many cases, the older fairy tales are a little bit more honest in terms of how brutal they are and how brutal they can be. Because, you know, let's face it, the world is brutal and will continue to be brutal, particularly for people who are marginalized. And I think, you know, Disney fairy tales in sort of, in making everything bright and colorful and, you know, ensuring those happy endings come along. And I should say, just, just to clarify, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Disney basher. I do think Disney is problematic in many ways, uh, but I also watch all of the movies. I continue to watch oh, them. Yeah. I love Moana. I think it's amazing. But I, I think it's important to talk about these things, right? And to, especially to talk about these kinds of things with kids and, and, you know, remind them that the world goes beyond the stories and the, the movies that we watch and see, even though those movies and, and shows are, you know, shape us in very particular ways. I think the older fairy tales, if you look at something like Cinderella, right? Uh, in the Brothers Grimm version of Cinderella, the stepsisters have their eyes pecked out at the end of the tale as punishment um, for how badly they treated Cinderella over the course of the story. And, you know, that is a very brutal way of encouraging people, as it did at the time, encouraging people to, you know, be kind to others, essentially. Like, it's, it's a very clear moral judgment on the stepsister's behavior, right? In ways that, you know, don't necessarily happen that brutally in the Cinderella that we know of in the Disney, the Disney universe. But there's also still in the Disney version, you know, a sense of comeuppance, right? Where Cinderella gets what she deserves at the end and the stepmother and the stepsisters sort of, you know, are thwarted. And it's interesting to me that even though the, the older versions of tales are often quite honest in, in those senses in ways that Disney fairy tales are not, that sort of come up and still happens. I mean, if you look at the Little Mermaid, like Ursula gets, you know, speared through the gut by a ship harpoon, which is quite painful and is depicted quite painfully on, on the screen. And they're the kinds of things that you look at and you think, oh my gosh, I watched that when I was seven years old and it was, you know, no problem. You just kind of, kind of take it in. And we can talk about Disney movies, you know, till the cows come home in, in that sense, looking at Disney and all those dead parents, right? All those, those poor orphan children going out and making their way through the world. But I, I think for me, there is something refreshing about the honesty and brutalness of the older fairy tales. You know, the fact that it doesn't shy away from how terrible the world can be. Um, there is something to that. But I do still have a soft spot for Disney, right? And, and the way that the great thing about fairy tales is, is that they're stories that somehow stay the same and yet also can change at the same time if enough thought and care is put into it, right? So stories like Beauty and the Beast 
the general format of the narrative stays the same over the course of the tale, but it's redone and reimagined for a new audience into the 20th and then the 21st centuries. I think fairy tales have a real power. There's something very comforting and also very exciting about returning to these narratives that we all know and have known for a really long, really long time and, and viewing them in new ways. Uh, and I think, you know, the older versions of the tales will always have a certain kind of power, both in the ways in which they depict the brutal world and also in, in the ways that they, they operate as almost historical artifacts, right? Um, the original version of Sleeping Beauty, which essentially has a woman who is asleep in a castle and then the king comes upon her and rapes her when she's unconscious, you know, is a story that was constructed in 14th, 15th century Italy, uh, written by a man who, you know, maybe wasn't, I mean, obviously I can't speak for an author who lived centuries ago, but maybe was looking more at the magic of the story, but also was very influenced by patriarchal norms, right? And very, you know, clearly writing about the, the, the place of a woman in society and, and where she landed on the hierarchy of things. And we can see that by the, the stories that are told, right? And the way that these stories change over the course of centuries. When you look at, you know, the French fairy tale in the 17th century and, and how that started to change with the French salons that female writers would hold where they would retell these famous folk tales and really try and, and you know, in, inject highfalutin and, and very literary style language into them. That's where you get, you know, traditional patriarchal figures in the tales are swapped out. So, you know, mentions of the church and, you know, the village priest who is the, the wise person that the protagonist goes to is swapped out for a wise woman or a fairy godmother or a mischievous sprite. And, you know, that is a, a way that the, the tales shift to become political and they're very subversive in those kinds of ways, right? But again, the, the magic and the power of fairy tales is that they are these things both and at the same time, where they can be subversive and then, and then also used as tools to keep society in line. And I think when it comes to disability and disfigurement, there is a lot of that kind of towing the line and, and keeping the status quo in place, uh, where you know, we, don't, we don't traditionally revere difference in these kinds of stories. And the, the aim of these stories is to get someone who is different essentially looking and acting like everybody else by the end of the story. And there's a lot that we can learn from that. You know, there's a lot that we can use to build a society that's new and tell stories that are new and different in ways that I think would really benefit both children and adults alike. Yeah, you're just making space. It doesn't take that much effort in actuality to do these things. It's just going like, well, why do I have to suddenly change a doorknob? Yeah. Right? You go, yeah. I was going into a mall the other day with my mother and all the doors were scanned because here's a shocker. You don't want to touch the doors anymore because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So it took a pandemic for doors to just be automated when they should be already. Like we live in 2020. It's that question yeah. of, you know, 
people have, especially where the disability community is concerned, you know, there's always that question of, oh, resources, right? Like we don't have the resources to retrofit all of our buildings and put ramps in and yada, 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 yada. We don't have the resources for everyone to work from home, blah, blah, blah. And yet, like you say, there's suddenly a global pandemic and, oh, well, it will benefit you know, the entirety of society as opposed to a few special few people. And that's something that always fascinated me because, you know, disability, people are so used to thinking about disability as an either or sort of binary thing where you're either completely incapacitated and you can't do anything or you're able-bodied, right? You, you don't really have a disability. When in actuality, disability is a very wide spectrum and, you know, the, the, kinds of conditions that affect people and the ways in which their lives are shaped by these varying conditions, impairments, whatever you want to call them, is incredibly wide. And, you know, really, when you take that into account, I mean, the, the sort of accepted number of, of disability the percentage of the population currently sits around 20 to 25 percent because of people who openly identify as being disabled. You know, that that ticks about 20, 25 percent of the population, I think. And, you know, this is not um, this is not standard research or anything like that. But I, I really do believe that under a wide definition of disability, there's actually a lot more people that would fall under that umbrella. And the one of the ultimate aims of, you know, the, the disability rights movement is to get everybody to understand that there is no one size fits all in society. Like we all have varying needs and varying ways of moving throughout the world. And it's important for society to meet all of them. So going back to the question of, you know, the pandemic, the way that the world suddenly changed for everybody when the pandemic was in place, the reason that that happened was because people in power suddenly said, okay, well, this is affecting a lot more than just, you know, 20% of the population that we can forget. And, you know, just sort of, again, there's that ostracization, right? Where you just kind of shove the people who are different off in a corner because then you don't have to think about them. Then you don't have to change society in any way. But suddenly when you have this cataclysmic event that's affecting a whole bunch of people, okay, well now we will mobilize our resources and put in all of these accessibility measures, which we're always able to do and to make, you know, to put into place. I mean, really thinking about, you know, how quickly the world pivoted to working from home when disabled people have been arguing for that sort of accessibility measure for years, if not decades, it really kind of throws things into sharp relief. And going back to the the question of language, you know, one of the things that I see so often now on social media platforms is people complaining about how nobody has a sense of humor anymore. Um, You can't say anything anymore. You know, you always have to be careful of what you say. And, you know, the issue is not that you were, you could say whatever you wanted before and you can't say whatever you want now. The issue is that you, you couldn't actually really say whatever you wanted before. It was always wrong. It was always, you know, cruel to uh, use disabled slurs. It was always cruel um, to use language that's racially inappropriate and, and racist and all those kinds of things. And now the world is such that more people are getting called out for that, right? Um, so when you say something that's offensive online, the chances of you getting called out for it, because there are so many other people online, are much higher than, you know, when you used to just say ableist things to your friends and understand that, you know, the chances of you encountering someone 
who um, is disabled or was disabled, uh, we're, we're much smaller, right? Now everybody's living on a stage and everybody's getting called out in a way that I think is actually quite healthy. I mean, I, I really don't think, especially when it comes to that question of, oh, you know, nobody has a sense of humor anymore. I really don't think it costs people all that much to think about the words that they use and the language that they use when they're speaking about people even when they're frustrated, right? Like it doesn't actually, it, it requires a little bit of thought and being careful, but it doesn't cost you anything to look at the words that you use and consider whether you're using, for example, ableist slurs in conversation, right? When you say, oh, that's so lame, or you know, that person is tone deaf, or that person is blind to this, that's language that really hurts particular members of the population who have been vocal about this and are saying it on platforms that people can see and listen to. And it's just willful ignorance at this point, right, of, of people who are deciding not to pay attention to that and say, oh, well, my getting laughs out of, you know, using this language or calling someone the R word is more important than making sure that my words don't hurt anybody. You know, people are very attached to not changing. There's a thing that happens now, I think, with, especially with, um, you know, we live in the Andy Warhol universe, right? Where everybody has their 15 minutes of fame and it's like a 15 minutes that's just <laughs> extended yeah. on for like unlimited yeah. amounts of time. And I find that people, and you know, I include myself in this, it's very uncomfortable to make a mistake on the internet because you're making a mistake real time in front of a huge amount of people and it it you know that old saying the internet is written in ink right so it, it's the kind of thing that people are worried that mistakes will stick with you and, and stay with you and you know they do and i think that's where we all have a responsibility right to to be careful of the language that we use to be careful of the way that we move throughout the world but also um to really work toward creating a culture of safety and forgiveness where we understand that people do make mistakes and people do learn if you know they're given the tools and the space in which to make those mistakes in a safe kind of way whereas you know the thing that gets talked about a lot with especially in regards to discussions of politics where you have people on the left and the right and it's not that people don't or it's not that people um don't disagree now it's it's that they disagree but then they're also you know, nobody wants to be wrong. Nobody wants to be shown as being wrong. So people are, are not as concerned about, or seemingly not as concerned about doing the right thing as they are with just being shown to be right in an argument, right? Um, and that has a lot to do with the polarization of, of the world and the media in which we live. Um, but I think it also has you know, that, and we all have a part to play in, in this. It, it also says a lot to how we, as a society, I think, feel quite scared um, and have less of a sense of, of community and less of a sense of really investing in people over the long term, right? Um, and people's ideas and people's growth over the long term of things, because there's always this like, oh, you know, you can look back at the mistakes that somebody made 15 years ago and suddenly it, cancels them or cancels their career. I mean, I think there's space for nuance in these kinds of things too, right? And if someone is, you know, if, if someone, for example, is unearthed as saying something that was terrible, you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, but they've 
made a progression in being an individual since then and, you know, have really worked on themselves and shown that they, as you say, are, you know, have made that commitment to making space and have recognized that maybe they didn't do that before. I, I think we should leave room and leave space for growth um, for these kinds of things. It's all, it's all active work, right? And I, I think that is key here in the books that we read and the media that we consume and the conversations that we have is understanding that we all have a part to play here. We are all participants in the society in which we live and we have responsibilities to one another as well as rights as human beings, you know, right to say, you have a right to say whatever you want on the internet, sure. But you also, I think, have a responsibility to, to really try and have empathy and extend that empathy out to your your fellow human beings which we're getting way off topic here so i'll just i'll just stop that no i think that that also but that connects to your book right like you you talk about that and that and that's that's something you touch upon in there is talking about empathy and understanding of people mm-hmm. and and that's why i think your book isn't just a thing where it's like analytical and just saying this is what you need to know these are the facts, you know, droll. It's like, it's a story and saying this, this, this is a human connection and you adding yourself to it saying, I'm a human being. This is my experience. Mm-hmm. These are the, the experience of other people as well. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't just connect to disability. It has a larger encompass to that where it does like all those things and those values and what you're talking about apply to so many other things. All you have to do is change disability with queerness, all applicable. And, and you quickly realize that with what in your writings, you go, oh, this is all yeah. connected. This is all of these things. You just, it's just a, one word for another and how we treat people and to allow it to be accessible. So when you talk about uh, creating a space, that's what's really nice about the book is you do such a great job creating that space. We need to be gentle with one another, but also insistent, I think, in, in, you know, recognizing that there are ways that we improve the language that we use and and the way that we think of one another. One of the things that I didn't really have room to talk about in the book, but goes back again to that question of ostracization and what you were saying earlier about how, you know, you you can almost swap disability out for other kinds of marginalizations and the same kind of overarching narrative applies is looking at the way that a lot of Disney villains are are coded as queer and how that has also been the case for a lot of stories, right? Where you have the villain um, has often been coded in in sort of classically, you know, arguably stereotypical uh, queer ways. And again, how that question of someone who's different from those around them it's been, you know, as a society, we don't know how to handle that or haven't known how to handle that in the past. So we box it up and we just move it off to the side so that you don't have to think about it anymore. And I just really, I really hope, I mean, you know, I think first and foremost for me in, in writing the book, I really hope that it, it has, and it has, um, but I hope it continues to connect with people who are disabled and have you know, have had their own journeys of, of coming to terms with their disability in, in various ways, but also that it, it continues to, you know, illuminate for those who maybe haven't thought about these kinds of questions in detail before, or haven't thought about how 
you know, the, the facial difference trope is so often used as, as a shorthand for villainry in particular, because we have historically treated people who look different in very particular ways. And, and I just hope that, you know, it, it continues to open that conversation of, okay, how have we treated people who are different in the stories that we tell for, you know, time out of mind? And how can we change that going forward? How do we learn from and uplift the stories of people who have been marginalized in, in ways that changes the society in which we live? I know that the, the obvious question after is, how do you do that? But then the obvious answer to that is, you just do it. There's a lot of listening involved, which I think is also a thing that becomes difficult in, you know, the, the 15 minutes of internet fame world in which we live. Everybody is so uh, used to saying whatever they want to say on this internet platform and having a platform that we forget that, you know, conversation and not being talked to all the time. Conversation is key here. It's key to growth. It's key to learning. And a huge part of conversation is listening to what another person has to say. I talk a lot about um, my own, you know, role, my own journey to becoming a, a disability rights activist through my work and the kind of conversations that I have with people. And a huge part, like a formative part of that journey was following a, a whole bunch of disabled people on Twitter and just listening to what they had to say for a good year. Um, and I mean, I, I still listen to what they say, but what I mean when I say that that first year was that I didn't engage in those conversations or, you know, say anything of my own for a good year sort of and a bit because I just wanted to get the lay of the land. I wanted to understand what people were talking about. I wanted to understand the issues that were at the heart of things that I hadn't really known about before. And I think that really is key, like that, that listening part and understanding that, you know, you don't always have to be the person talking in the center of the room. Um, you know, in fact, it's preferable if you're not always the person talking in the center of the room. Like this is the whole point, right? Um, the point of a, a, a never ending buffet is that there is enough food to go around for everybody and that everybody should have their chance to go up and eat. Um, not that one person should always be eating at the expense of everybody else. Is there anything right now? I know that in the, at the end of the book, you have an afterwards about Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. Have you rewatched Game of Thrones? Does that still hold up for you? I have not watched it. Um, do you think Game of Thrones? I know this is an off. Is it's off from the thing. But do you think Game of Thrones is going to hold up over time? I don't. Um, partly because of how it ended. Uh, yeah. I, I think the last season was just a little sloppy. I think they just tried to cram. I mean, you know, in all respect to the crew and everybody who worked so hard on it, because you can see that they worked really hard on it. But I, I think it just, there was a lot crammed into not enough time. And I think that just did a disservice to the, the storytelling that came before, especially because that storytelling was so rich. Yeah, I, I don't think it will. Partly because I think, you know, there's something that's very, there's something that's very traditional about the way that Game of Thrones has that narrative played out, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there's so many stories now that are so different and, you know, don't, I mean, Game of Thrones, you know, is essentially a, a white person's idea of fantasy, right? And I think there's so many different stories out there now that 
really have the potential to impact the world in, in ways that Game of Thrones doesn't because Game of Thrones is just harking back to the same old fantasy story that's just told over and over and over again, right? Down to the knights and the dragons. We know how that story goes. Those stories are a dime and a dozen, or a dime a dozen rather. And, and I think, you know, there's a real push now for stories that are different. And I think that push is going to continue um, to the point where, you know, things like Game of Thrones are going to look very dated, even over and above, you know, the, the era or the, the supposed era in which the, the stories are placed. I do think, having said all of that, I, I do think Game of Thrones is an, an important cultural touchstone for a lot of ways. Um, I do think the way that they treated disability on the show was very interesting. There are lots of differing opinions on that, for sure, and many people are not happy, others are. Um, I think, for me, the thing that was powerful about Game of Thrones is that, you know, characters with disabilities, especially those who acquire disabilities, you know, there's a standard narrative that happens in other stories that we know where someone acquires a disability in life and it's all about them like trying to you know overcome this sudden catastrophe that has happened to them and I'm not downplaying that journey it is a catastrophe and it's a difficult journey for many people um, but there's this sense that you know someone is irrevocably altered in very specific ways that relate to their their development and their worth as human beings after get, having acquiring a disability and the thing that I found interesting interesting in Game of Thrones was that, you know, you had characters like Jamie Lannister who loses his, it's his sword hand that he loses in the course of the book. And yet that doesn't, you know, he, he continues to be a knight. He continues to be a fighter. He adapts in ways that, you know, Bran, who becomes paralyzed uh, at the beginning of the show, also adapts. Um, and, you know, Disabled people are a really great example of how, as human beings, we're really resilient and we really, really can learn to deal with almost anything and can learn to grow and move into lives that are maybe different from what we had envisioned for ourselves at, at our beginning, but are, you know, lives that are rich and joyous and wonderful nonetheless. And, I, and so I'm, I'm grateful to Game of Thrones for that lens on things, you know, but... There's lots of other stuff about it that I don't know going to hold up as well. One last time, that was Amanda LaDuke uh, having a conversation with myself on many things, but mostly about her book that is out now called Disfigured on Fairy Tales, Disability and Making Space by Coach House Books. Again, look out for The Centaur's Wife if you can get a hold of The Miracles of Ordinary Men. Check her out on Twitter, Facebook, and on Instagram, Click the links in the episode bio or go to amandaladuke.com for more information. Again, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and on Instagram at Dad's Read Princess Stories. You probably already know that. We are finished with our first and second season, but that doesn't mean you don't have to stop listening to the show. Go back. That's the beauty of fairy tales and storytelling that... When you like something, you can go back and read it. We do that with our TV shows. We do it with movies. Why can't we do it with the books that we read or the things that we listen to? And if you do enjoy the show, please like and subscribe to us. Leave us a review. All those sort of things help get listens. We are working really hard right now on prepping for season three. We hope to get that to you in the new year. 
But until then, please be kind to one another and stay safe.